0: So I want to give a little introduction. You know why am I talking about this book? So um, some of you may know I go and visit my father in uh, Cleveland from time to time. Uh, he's in one of these managed care places, and uh, a lot of my time is kind of sitting around just keeping him company. And I always sort of see what kind of magazines he has on his on his coffee table. So I was going through. His, his magazines, and, um, and one of them was UU World. And I came across this article uh, by Chuck Collins. And um, it was kind of interesting, and he was talking about, in particular, he was talking about charities. And he was talking about how charities actually exacerbate wealth inequality. And I said, what? What's this all about? So I read, his, read the article, and he, and he made some very good points. Um, I mean, the bottom line is is basically charities are tax-exempt. Well, what does tax-exempt mean? It means if I give, let's say I'm in a 35% state and, and federal tax bracket on my marginal tax rate. So if I give uh, a dollar, I it, it, it doesn't cost me a dollar. You know, it, it, basically the government is kicking in because the money I give tax-exempt, that means the government doesn't get money from my taxes to do government things. Instead, I, I kick in two dollars and the government kicks in one and it goes to my favorite charity, Okay, whatever that charity happens to do. All they need is a tax-exempt number and the government's good with that. They give me this, this um, ability to do that. Um, and so if you looked at, at Chuck Collins' article, one of the things he mentioned was things like schools. And, um, and that kind of impacts us in Los Alamos um, because we're a fairly wealthy community. We like to have good schools. We're aware that most of the schools in the state are struggling. We have an exceptionally good school here. And we can make it better. We can do things like... Um, you know, vote for bond issues to make our facilities very good. And we can donate to, to the schools directly. We can donate to foundations or um, uh, other organizations that funnel that money to the schools. So if you look around the country, you find out that there are a lot of places where the school districts are fairly wealthy and some places where they're very poor. And the people in the wealthy districts... Um, either uh, say, you know, the school is good, but it's not good enough. I'll send my kid to private school. And um, maybe some of those private schools are tax-exempt. Or they'll say, you know, my school is good, but it could be better, so they hold fundraisers and they donate to their schools. Um, and wh- what's the effect of that? Well, you have a school in another part of the state that's maybe completely dependent on general tax revenues um, to, to fund their, their um, their programs, they they don't go to their to the individual people in the in the town and say, hey, can you cough up an extra thousand bucks a head for our um, for our schools? And so you have people in their kind of narrow self interest um, donating money, which is a good thing, but in donating that money, some of that money really isn't theirs in a way. I mean the the government was going to take that money and use it for general purpose things, including schools, and now that has been subtracted from the coffers and given to a particular school. Um, and so you may have a state like ours where, oh, the, the, monies from, the state gives basically the same money to all the schools ac- across the district, and we try to have a state funding formula. We don't do it like a lot of states where here's your... Um, your property tax, and that goes to support your local school. We do it in a more general way, which is kind of a progressive way to do it. But then there are all these things that undercut that. And so what might be – what would be fairer but nobody's really excited about is I go down and to the fundraiser down at my local school, of, let's say Barranca – that's where my kids went – I go to Baronkin, and I donate all this money to the fundraiser and, you know, I do a silent auction and raise great monies and we take all that money and we go to the state and we say, here, use this for education. You don't do that. So that's kind of the basis of Chuck Collins talking about how charities exacerbate inequality. And that's a nice example because you and I can relate to it, but it's really just the tip of the iceberg. Because there are all sorts of foundations that are set up around the the country with tax-exempt monies. And what do these foundations do? Well, they push their own agendas. And sometimes these agendas are charitable, and sometimes they are charitable, in quotes. Uh, And often they're open to a lot of abuses, um, which the charities lobby very hard to keep those abuses going. So you may know of organizations that go out and rate the charities. So one of the things they'll tell you is how much goes into their mission and how much goes into their overhead and uh, how much goes into a lot of kind of Mickey Mouse stuff. And so you may know recently over the past year or two some charities have been called out for giving almost nothing to their supposed cause and um, oh, doing things like junkets for their members, high salaries for their board members. I mean, the whole idea of having somebody on the board who's given a salary um, instead of doing it as a charitable donation. Imagine that. You know, getting $100,000 for sitting on a board and meeting a couple of times a year as opposed to donating their time because typically these guys are wealthy anyway. Um, So there are all kinds of abuses that go on which kind of exacerbate the inequality okay? um, so one thing about Chuck Collins uh, let me just take a quick glance at my notes up here um, oh so what I discovered I didn't really see that in his article in um, the UU world or when I was reading his book is he's actually a member of a Unitarian Universalist congregation okay? so that was kind of a discovery for me um, he talks about how he gave away his wealth. So he's a, um, uh, an heir to the Oscar Mayer fortune. Uh, as a youth, he fell in with a crowd where um, there was some discussion about their wealth, having some guilt about their wealth, and what should we do with it. And he decided, as a young man, to give it away. And he gave away half a million dollars. Okay now you can imagine how his parents might have thought about this. Um, you can imagine how well let's say let's say my kid has some um, uh, inheritance or some uh, some money brought down you know passed down through his family, and he gets this this idea like, oh great, you know i'm I i should not really have this, I should give it to the greater good and he he goes off and donates it, you know you can imagine as a as a parent you'd say, well, wait a second, that doesn't just represent you know, cash, it represents security, it represents a lot of other things you can't do that, well, he did that um, so that really separates him from a lot of people um, and you sort of start to uh, wonder why okay. um, let's see, why don't we do the, ne- why don't we do the next slide um, so, so this is kind of a uh, a uh, little synopsis of his early life. Are on? So, All right. Hello. number four. Ah, right, thanks. Um, so let me just go over this with you. So he's born in Madison, Wisconsin, in '59. So he was born the same year as my wife. Um, uh, and he and he had uh, he had uh, an inheritance. Um, he attended Cranbrook schools. Uh, Mitt Romney was actually a classmate. Uh, let's see. He witnessed the Detroit riots and became concerned about inequality. Okay, so this is at age seven. So he's thinking about this. When he's, when he's 11, this is Earth Day 1970. I believe that was the first Earth Day. He participates in that. So he's getting some kind of social consciousness here. Uh, he raises money for guide dogs, talks to people about the environment, uh, and in 85, 1985, when he's 26, he gives away his inheritance of half a million dollars. And um, with inflation and natural growth, uh, he claims that would be worth about $7 million today. Okay. Um, oh, and he's worked with William Gates and George Soros, which I found kind of interesting. So he's, he's kind of in with a, the with a high rollers these days. Okay, uh, next slide. If you want to see a TEDx talk to get a feel for this man uh, talking to you um, what kind of person he is you know watch him move hear him talk get him to explain a little bit about his philosophy there's a nice TEDx talk uh, that I came across um, and if you want um, you know contact me later and I'll give you this um, this URL uh, next okay so um, I was interested in his motivation, and uh, he's he, so he met another man at a fairly young age. So he's he's 18 years old. So he meets George Pillsbury. George is is an heir to another heir to a fortune, um, but he's set up this co co-found, he's co-founding this uh, Haymarket People's Fund, and he's supporting change, not charity. Okay, it's, some of these things ought to sound a little familiar to you in, in terms of uh, of sort of taglines. Uh, the thing that caught my interest about this was uh, Pillsbury's definition of guilt. So he says, there are two kinds of guilt. One thing we label as guilt is a normal and healthy emotional reaction to feeling the disparities of wealth, suffering, and opportunity. If you don't feel something about that, then you're not human. Okay? And then he talks about another kind of guilt. He says, it's a self-hating and paralyzing guilt and it keeps you from taking action. And the key is to embrace empathetic guilt as a motivator to change the system, okay? So I think this goes to something really basic in um, human psyche and something we ought to be aware of, and that is um, that you can have guilt and you can use it as a motivator, or you can have guilt and you can be dragged down by it, okay? Very, Very good theme for a sermon, you know? Someone ought to give us a sermon on that types of guilt. Okay? One of the things that um, uh, Chuck Collins did early on in his career he went off to the Boston area and he got involved in this sort of social action organizing and he found himself talking to some people who were in a trailer park and it turned out that the trailer park was about to be sold. So here are a bunch of people living in a trailer park, they're obviously not wealthy it turned out there's a, there was a progressive law in Massachusetts that allowed the residents of a trailer park to match an offer, if the trailer park was being sold, to match that offer and buy it themselves. Okay, imagine that. So here is something about the nature of, of uh, laws and progressive laws versus um, regressive laws. So if that law hadn't been there, they would not have had this option. Okay. So being aware of that, uh, Chuck goes around and talks to everybody and says, well, what do you want to do? Um, sort of holds a, um, a community uh, organizing event and lets people know what their options are, talks to them, interviews them, find out what, what their resources are, can they afford to buy this place? Well, if they can't afford to buy the place, they have to pull up stakes. Well, most of the trailer parks, it turns out they're not really that mobile. Uh, They're really pre-manufactured homes. You bring them in, you set them up, and they're typically not moving ever again. And so this was going to be an incredible hardship if these people had to move. So they went around, and it turned out if everybody chipped in a certain amount of money, kind of in the $10,000 range, they could buy the place. But um, not everybody had resources. And some people could donate basically zero. They were living from hand to mouth. So they held a meeting, and um, at the meeting said, well, you know, we can't really do this because we don't have enough resources. And people, one by one, uh, started to um, volunteer basically their life savings and put together um, a package and bought the place. And so that had a profound effect on Chuck Collins because he realized... That people will do things that are not in their narrow self interest okay in, I mean they 'll do things that are charitable it, it, it did benefit them all, obviously, but they were willing to take a risk with their life savings okay so that leads him forward through his life so he 's having that experience when he 's in his 20s okay? uh, next slide oh okay, so here's the, the other thing that, that caught my eye about populism and this maybe um, applies to things that we saw in the past election, because we saw two candidates who were generally described as populists, and I think fell into these two different camps, okay? Um, As inequality grows, people go into two directions, uh, either very regressive or progressive. Regressive populism is when people feel anxious and insecure and they look for scapegoats. Unscrupulous politicians deflect people's concern and anger toward whoever is the easiest target. New immigrants, women of color on welfare, religious minorities. Progressive populism is when people understand that the rules have been rigged by a powerful group of wealthy people and multinational corporations. Our job is to get people to look up the economic ladder to target their populist wrath at the richest 1%. And then, we need to make the world safe for class war. Okay, so this I found very interesting and very edgy. Okay, so this is what's going on when he's a young man in his 20s. He later turns around and decides that really the way to go is not to have class war, but actually to enlist people across the economics spectrum to do the right thing, including wealthy people, well, which we'll get to a little later. Uh, next um, let's see so still as a young man he's, he's going on the, on the road um, he, he f- formed an organization called Share the Wealth which he later relabeled United for a Fair Economy Okay, because the Share of the Wealth sounds, I'm using the word edgy, a little radical and the other sounds a little more wholesome and um, mainline and there's a, a, he had a book, uh, Economic Apartheid in America, A Primer on Economic Inequality and Insecurity. So he takes a message on the road, and he's giving lectures to working people. Um, and so at this point he's saying, you know, social change movements are fueled by anger, and they need targets. Okay? Uh, he's also noticed that during this time, this is kind of the, the 80s, uh, the political right built its power by... Um, deflecting a cesspool of white resentments towards people of color, new immigrants, poor people, and folks with diverse sexual orientations. So looking at that as a successful model, he's saying uh, let's promote policies that reduce inequality, raise the minimum wage, tax the wealthy, make it easier to join a union, and amplify the voices of uh, business leaders and wealthy individuals to speak out for tax fairness. Okay, so he's backed off a little bit on this, you know, let's let's go and, and do the class uh, warfare. And instead, he's talking about uh, getting business leaders and wealthy individuals um, to basically do the right thing. And he's taking this message to people and slowly starting to reveal to them that, well, he may is not who they may think he is because he grew up in wealth and privilege, uh, although he, he, ha, he has given it away, he's kind of of the one percent himself okay uh, next so he's, he's working and he's trying to do things like um, uh, get the real uh, the, um, the estate tax, the death tax, as, as it's called. Um, uh, to continue that, because there were there were a lot of uh, movements to reduce uh, estate taxes or uh, actually repeal them completely, and um, he he comments that um, in 1994 the Massachusetts legislature was more interested in punitive welfare reform than progressive taxes. Okay, the um, estate tax being one of the more progressive ones. So one of the people he's working with is a woman named Marion Dow uh, from Dominica. And she comments, "Without us poor folks to blame, people would have to wake up and notice who is really picking their pockets." Okay, kind of a, a theme. If you remember, in the 90s, uh, we had welfare reform in this country um, when Clinton was office and uh, in office, and took a lot of people off the welfare rolls and made, uh, in a lot of cases, made welfare um, a, uh, a shorter-term uh, prospect. So you were allowed maybe a year on welfare. Or a couple of years on welfare, and then you had to get off. Um, so he organizes um, a thousand millionaires, multimillionaires, and billionaires to defend the federal estate tax uh, from appeal, and he gets together with Bill Gates Sr., co-authors a book called Wealth in Our Commonwealth: Why America Should Tax Accumulated Fortunes. Uh, next, um, so. Let's see, one of the, one of the things um, uh, about, let's see, the Commonwealth is that we have a situation where, where people uh, can be very successful in this country, and one of the ideas behind this is that um, if you took the same people and you put them in a, um, say, third world country, the ability to make uh, become a, a multimillionaire or a billionaire is very much reduced, and people say, Well, why is that and it 's for a number of reasons, one of which is the environment in which you find yourself and so you've got um, you have uh, basically a generally well educated population uh, you 've got good infrastructure, good roads you 've got water you 've got electricity, you have all these things that are out there that are provided by the society already, okay? so you're building on something that's already built. Um, one of the comments is a lot of that that has been built uh, is, is built by the government um, and so you rely on that, so you're building on this base so although you may be able to make a great fortune, a great business, it's not all just your own doing. And so part of the reason for the estate tax is to say, here are the people who have been successful in this environment. Now that they have reached the end of their lives, we want to take some of that back and invest it again to keep this going. Okay, so that's, that's one of the ideas. Um, now, you might see some of that uh, even today. So if you look around in our state, so you, you'll see... Um, uh, articles, uh, newspaper articles, about what brings companies to our state. And one of the things that they decry or moan about is that we don't have a great educational system. And so when a company comes in, they want to come in with an educated population so that they they can use that resource to be successful. And so we're cajoled to invest more in education not just for the um, benefit of our our children and the general things that a good education brings, but because they become more employable. And so we have this example that business leaders understand that the environment in which they work increases their chances of success. So they want us to have a well-educated population. They want us to have good roads, okay? And they're cajoling the government to make that happen. They're not saying, hey, we need this stuff, so we're gonna come in and we're gonna make it happen. They really sort of put that on the general population. That's my take on this. Um, Another thing that you're seeing in this community even more recently is that um, lately the council has been meeting and been talking about the need for affordable housing. So the laboratory has hired a lot of new people. A lot of people are retiring. And there's a housing shortage, and the county is considering selling land and trying to uh, promote the development of that land for housing. The laboratory is not doing that, but the laboratory needs that to be successful. Okay, so there's there's a sort of acknowledgement that the environment uh, in which a business operates is very important for success. Okay. Um, One of the things that intrigued me that's in the book, and um, I I include this because uh, uh, Chuck Collins spends considerable time on it, is there is an author, uh, Robert Frank, uh, a journalist rather, and he wrote a book called Richistan, A Journey Through the American Wealth Boom and the Lives of the New Rich. And he identifies, um, he identified four of these, and Collins added another one, uh, the one called Affluentville. And so he breaks it down into um, what part of the population has this kind of affluence. And he, he doesn't talk about income. He's ta- talking about wealth. Okay? So this is people's wealth. Um, who are they? And um, how much of uh, the population do they represent? How much uh, wealth do they hold? And then he goes on to talk about where does their income come from? Um, what kind of lifestyles do they live? And it's, and it's kind of, uh, it's an interesting part. I didn't really go into it too much. Um, I sort of read through this and it didn't really grab my attention. So but I had to include it because that's, that's a, a, a big piece of his book. Uh, next. Oh, so this part also uh, intrigued me. And the quote is, self-made men, indeed. Why don't you tell me of the self-laid egg? Um, and so this goes to the, that whole idea about, well, it's, it's sort of to de- debunk a myth which um, Collins perceives that people talk about how they talk about their sacrifices, all the things they did, and how they made themselves, that, gee, I didn't get any help, I did all this on my own. And um, he, um, he basically tries to debunk some of that. Uh, so I already sort of talked about this, um, it, it, like a third world nation part um, creating fantastic wealth in third world nation, um, but they they kind of om- omit often in the story they omit the help that they got. Okay, and so it's a what hyperbole I guess you would call it. They um, they know what sacrifices they made, but they're not typically. Um, humble enough to talk about what uh, benefits they got. So, for example, uh, Collins is talking with a, with a couple who have a very successful business. Um, it turns out that they did a lot of scraping and, um, and, and sacrifice, but at one point they actually got considerable resources from their family, that their family wrote a, a member of their family wrote a check to help them out. This kind of goes back... To, um, there was a comment I think that um, that Mitt Romney made that he was criticized for because he talked about how pe- anyone could be successful and what they needed to do was to go to their family members and get resources if if they didn't have them themselves. And uh, without fully acknowledging that, um, a lot of people come from families that don't have resources. You know, if you if you if you were to pool all their resources, you couldn't you couldn't get a start. Um, and, and also there are there are some government programs. And I'll get to that a little bit later about what those happen to be that um, that, that help people do that. Um, so then there is a critique I, I talked a little bit before about the estate tax and one of the comments that uh, that Collins makes is that the stated aim of successful business people to avoid taxes such as estate taxes, is an attempt to deny future generations the same benefits that made their own success possible, okay? So you put out the myth that you're a self-made man, you don't talk about the benefits that you got, and oh, by the way, you do have enough recognition to realize that um, investing in the future is taking away from your own... uh, uh, resources and so you try to try to cut that underpinning out. Okay, uh, next. Oh, so this is Bill Gates Sr. Who, who talks further on that and, and, and makes this point clearer than I certainly did. Uh, and he says, no one accumulates a fortune without the help of our society's investments. How much wealth would exist without America's unique property rights protection, public infrastructure, and academic institutions? We should celebrate the estate tax as an economic opportunity recycling program. An economic opportunity recycling program. Where previous generations made investments for us, and now it's our turn to pass on the gift. Strengthening the estate tax is important for our democracy. So this is kind of interesting. You, and, and this is part of, I think, um, Colin's turn from his useful enthusiasm for, you know, let's, you know, let's go to war, let's... Um, Let's go after the one percenters uh to more an understanding that people do get it across the economic spectrum, and that what you really need to do is get those eloquent people to support your cause and uh and move things in the in the right direction okay next oh so here was uh just uh he, he spent in his book um a considerable amount of time actually enumerating some of the programs that the government put in place, in particular for the World War II veterans. After World War II, um, returning veterans did not have the same experience that the World War I returning veterans had, where suddenly here's a massive number of people thrown onto the job market, all trying to compete. The economy is winding down from the high production levels of World War I producing armaments and the, these people are in really rough shape. And so um, people r- recognized that. A lot of the people were from that, who were in power were from that generation and knew about those problems and made sure that did not happen after World War II. Um, what was interesting to me is um, there were scholarships for higher education which a lot of the returning vets took advantage of. And that did two things. It gave them a higher education so they could uh, have better jobs, um, actually make better jobs and better products. And it also kept them off the labor market while they were in school. So these guys come back, and a certain fraction of them go off to college, and so they're not competing for the jobs now. And so there was a delay, so they come into the labor market in, 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 a, in a trickle rather than a, than a flood. Um, there were loan guarantees for housing, business, and, and farms. Um, uh, home ownership was promoted. Uh, home ownership rates went from, I believe it was 40% to about 60%, so pre-war, about 40% of people owned their homes, and, and after it went up to 60. Uh, major change in, uh, in the um, demography. Um, then they had this other thing, unemployment pay for a year. So you could get $20 a week for 52 weeks. So if you came back and you couldn't find a job, you you could be basically on the dole. Um, uh, let's see. So, um, Collins makes the point that these sorts of programs actually helped establish the um, financial base and continuing wealth of what Tom Brokaw was calling the greatest generation. Okay? So, the effects of that continue on today. A subtext to this is that there was a racial bias in this. And that some of what you see today in the disparity between blacks and whites is a lot of these programs were not available to the colored population. Uh, The um, Hispanic and the the black population were uh, largely excluded from this uh, by various mechanisms. There is another part of the book where he talks about uh, reparations, uh, mentions that the Japanese-Americans received reparations fairly recently for what was done to them uh, in internment in World War II, and, uh, and so that's another sideline uh, that's covered in the book. Uh, next. Oh, so getting back to um, some of what I started talking about with, uh, with charities and how they exacerbate uh, inequality um, we talked about, I talked about how, um, the donations to the charities decrease the taxes that are paid by the donors, um, since those tax monies are not, um, coming into the government, a fraction of the money that's donated, it's, uh, basically repurposing of tax dollars, uh, to the favored, uh, organizations and causes. Uh, talked a little bit about how, um, there's a requirement for um, charities to donate 5%. Uh, Collins mentions that that guideline was set to sort of prevent abuses from charities sort of sitting on their funds and not really doing what they're set, up, set out to do. He makes a fur- further argument that charities might be required to um, give away more of their money and that if they gave away more with basically having a sunset date, the charity might actually be more effective. Because under the current rules, what a lot of charities do is figure out how to perpetuate themselves. And so the idea that you set up a charity and it lasts for 100, 200 years, is that really what a charity should be doing, or should they be using their monies to attack problems, current problems, and basically sunset themselves, well, they've, they've done their work and now they're gone okay? and um, I, I thought that was another interesting subtext of all this um, but he talks about how this 5% uh, most charities have come to take as a ceiling instead of a floor they basically look at that and say oh we're required to do 5% that's what we'll do we're just going to do what, we, what we're required to do we're not going to do more uh, and with, with few exceptions that's what's happening He also mentions that charities are not taking the place of government programs. Uh, How many charities do you know that are building a new bridge? Um, He talks about New Haven, where Yale is located, and he talks about how you go on the campus there, and it's a fantastic campus, lots of new buildings, wonderful um, environment. You step off the campus, and now you're in the blight of New Haven. Uh, And mentions that uh, even in the environment... um, of, of Yale in its vicinity, there are bridges that are closed because they're no longer viable. Um, so you've got these, these situations where the, the charities are not taking on some of the hard work that the, that the government does. Another example that he mentioned was food stamps. So you look at food stamps, it's running $75 billion a year. You look at the charities, the foundations, and they've got $49 billion a year. They're not going to be doing, replacing food stamps. The charities aren't doing that. We have um, instances like Elizabeth Shelter in in Santa Fe. You have self-help here where people are actually trying to do some of that, food assistance, that sort of thing. Um, But they cannot, at least at current levels that people give to them, they cannot really replace the government programs. Um, And and I talked earlier about donations to local schools uh, and how that increases this disparity. Uh, Next okay so in doing all this um, you know found a book thought well this is interesting um, like to share it with uh, the congregation uh, encourage you to to read it yourself uh, I did find it a good book but then I came across something that really caught my attention and uh, is now probably catching Tyler Taylor's attention um, we were talking about uh, the recent election and how people are feeling about it. Uh, Tyler has a little group that, that's uh, an article group. They pass around articles about what's going on now um, in the in this uh, in the, in our current um, uh, change of administrations, what to expect, that sort of thing. I've been talking with some people about uh, setting up something like a covenant group to talk to people and, and work through people's um, emotional responses to the election and some of their fears and worries, that sort of thing. Well, it turned out that there was a, a group, um, a resilient circle, that was set up by Reverend Terry Burke, Unitarian minister at, um, at Chuck uh, Collins's church in, uh, uh, in Jamaica Plain. And it was in, uh, as a reaction to the economic crash of 2008. A lot of people were, were feeling very vulnerable. Oops. Ah, there we go. Um, and, uh, and got together and, uh, for mutual support. And let's see. Um, this is how it worked. Fifteen of us from the first church started to meet one evening a week and continued meeting regularly over the course of a year, shifting to twice a month. At each meeting, we went around the circle and, uh, and checked in about how each of us was doing, very much like what you do in a covenant group. Um, these resilient circles uh, seem to serve three purposes, learning together, mutual aid, and social action. People were hungry to understand what was happening in the economy. They had trusted the experts, and now they had to learn from themselves. Okay, so I'm looking at this, and I'm drawing a lot of parallels with our current situation. Uh, A lot of us sort of thought we knew what was going on before the election. We're surprised. Well, most of the country was surprised. um, And and a lot of us find ourselves kind of uh, wondering what the future holds, and uh, possibly looking for uh, some sort of support. So... um, it's been done in the past. Um, now, we kind of looked into what was going on in the local area, and I'm not aware of any kind of like resilient circle uh, going on related to the, to the election. But having read this, I'm guessing that somewhere in the United States, probably in a Unitarian congregation somewhere, this sort of, uh, of program has started. Um, and uh, I've talked to a few people about trying to start such a program here, and um, there'll be a meeting with the minister next month to, to explore some of that even further. Um, next slide. Okay, so anyway, I've <laughs> monopolized the time here and, um, and given you my take on this book. Uh, if we're, we're sort of out of time, but if people would like to discuss some of this further, uh, we can do that over at coffee. All right? Okay, thank you.